Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, on LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Our topic today is the seven deadly sins leading to the strategy execution blues. I don't have a guest on today's show because I wanted to share my thoughts on strategy execution based on what we've heard to date from my excellent guests over the course of my first 16 episodes. As regular listeners are probably already aware, strategy execution is the North Star's underlying theme. So before we get going, I should let you know that I'll be referencing a number of past episodes and guests during the course of our discussion today. For a quick reference to all of my past and future episodes, please go to the North Star page of my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Each episode is numbered for ease of reference with a link to the on-demand recording of that episode. My radio show page also contains links to reference content for each episode, including this one. For reference, this is episode 17. I encourage you to check it out. It's a great resource library for all the topics that I have and will be covering. So with that, let's get things underway. So uh, over the past several months, I held 15 one-hour interviews with 18 industry professionals, each of which had world-class expertise across a wide variety of fields and topic areas. As I look back at each of these interviews in light of the North Star's overarching strategy execution theme, an interesting set of anti-patterns began to emerge. So just to recap, strategy execution represents an organization's perspective on establishing and achieving its goals and objectives. Strategy execution is generally viewed through a five-stage framework, which gave rise to envisioning where each of these anti-patterns took shape. We'll go through just briefly the uh, stages in a, a few minutes. Some organizations are good at executing strategy, many are not. So today, I plan to explore why so many organizations struggle in this critical area and what they might do to turn things around. So let me share an example. One type of strategy an organization may want to pursue would be based on a business leader's desire to improve the customer experience by specifically being able to recognize a customer across all product lines and lines of business. And this is difficult for a lot of organizations. I've known companies that have lost customers in, in large numbers because of this. So once goals and objectives are set, an impact assessment team would create and provide a business and technology impact assessment for business leaders. This assessment would be based on a formal approach, which we'll get into a little bit later. Assuming the scope was confirmed and agreed to, an expanded team would establish and present a proposed business design to those same leaders, along with a more refined scope and general cost range. So that type of business design, what we're looking at there is because we're looking across business units and product lines and customer areas, we're going to have to have a fairly global overall perspective on what we're trying to come up with. So it can't be narrowly focused. It can't be splintered. Assuming business leaders give the okay, they would formalize and launch the cross-system programs and projects necessary to meet interim and long-term milestones. All the work would be evaluated and tracked with an eye towards achieving the stated goals and objectives in a coordinated fashion. So that's a quick snapshot of a quick run-through of strategy execution. In that example, we're talking about something fairly comprehensive, uh, and, and probably lasting several years as organizations undergoing this in, on multi-year programs, but of course, there are larger organizations. Let me get back to the term that I mentioned earlier, anti-patterns. Anti-patterns are defined as commonly occurring solutions to problems that generate decidedly negative consequences. So I do this all the time, and it never seems to work out. For example, let's say that the majority of corporations adopted a flawed financial model that undermined their ability to deliver financial reports, and they keep repeating this, right? 
Or perhaps the same organization uses this model over and over again, and the numbers are never right. So this is an example of an anti-pattern. It not only generated negative consequences, but it happens on a regular basis. That's what we're going to be talking about today with these anti-patterns. They happen over and over again across different industries, organizations, geographies, uh, small and large. So the anti-patterns I saw arise from my interviews on various topics are in no way isolated. In fact, I made an effort to ask my guests about the frequency of the anti-pattern surfaced in our discussions. So I could summarize my assessment of the collective of aha moments uh, to me uh, as being shocked that so many organizations are repeating these anti-patterns on a regular basis and they keep getting negative results. But then that would be disingenuous as I've seen enough of these issues in person to know better. However, when I do talk to people who aren't in the trenches on a lot of these topics, uh, they're always amazed and surprised that uh, large organizations and medium to large and, and even some smaller ones struggle with, with some of these topics. So let's move on to the seven deadly sins that represent these anti-patterns uh, that surfaced in my interviews. So to be clear, these anti-patterns undermine or derail successful strategy execution on a regular basis. And while it only takes one to do so, most organizations are either hostage to or engaged in advancing these anti-patterns. So the backdrop, I interviewed experts in fields that included innovation, organizational design, the circular economy, enterprise risk management, net income maximization, artificial intelligence, business architecture, program execution, cloud digital transformation and related platforms, technology design, deployment, and investments, preparing business leaders for the future of strategy execution, and architecting for good. Clearly a wide variety of topics, and I'll get into a little more with some of the different speakers that I the interviewed, the guests I interviewed in a bit. So while the topics are diverse, the anti-patterns that kept showing up played like a refrain or a chorus in a song. As I said earlier, these anti-patterns that undermine strategy execution were not a shock to me based on my background, but I will admit to being curious as they began to emerge through early stage episode inter interviews. I was further shocked by the fact that these anti-patterns continued to emerge over such a wide variety of topics as they were reinforced in one interview after another. And to be clear, most of these guests uh, didn't work together, didn't know each other, hadn't even crossed paths. So before jumping into what I termed the seven deadly sins in my introduction, I want to emphasize that the 18 individuals uh, that I interviewed over the course of 16 episodes, again, represent a collection of world-class experts. Collectively, they, they include researchers, authors, educators, practitioners, technology experts at the top of their field, and leaders of business and technology organizations. And at least with a few of them, they wore several of these hats. So if you've not checked out some of the episodes I'll be mentioning, please do. Again, I have a quick reference to all episodes and interviews that may be found on my website. So let's jump into the seven deadly sins and take on the first one. Deadly sin number one, the strategy execution chain is broken. So the first anti-pattern is something I've seen emerge over many years, actually over many decades. In a nutshell, the strategy execution end-to-end -end chain is ineffective, incomplete, or simply broken at most organizations. We're talking about a five-stage strategy execution framework. It can be used by any organization of any size in any industry. It works if you're a small not-for-profit. It works for if you're a big global multi-divisional, uh, uh, multi-country, uh, large multinational. It's simple to visualize and explain, and it works. So let me quickly run you through it so we're all on the same page. So it starts when you establish strategy. So imagine your executives away on their weekend retreat and return to the office and hand you a strategic plan. Then, ideally, you interpret the impact of that strategy, and this is where you discover that the goals and objectives have major cross-organizational impacts that will take years to achieve and tens of millions of dollars to deliver. The strategy is established in stage one. The impact is reviewed and assessed and determined in stage two. 
Now, you'll have to go back to your executives and explain the impacts, but keep it simple. No more than one or two easy-to-follow visuals. Uh, They're going to give you 10 minutes on their agenda three weeks from Monday. So you'll have to go in there and say, this is uh, bigger than a bread box. Uh, It's going to take longer than you thought. It's much more extensive, but here's where we recommend to start, and here's where you'll get the biggest payback the most quickly. Of course, you'll have a formal assessment underlying these visuals in case they ask for details. And then business leaders should ideally ask, what's the scope of the solution? Well, that requires designing the solution at a high level to ensure that your investment has a clear target and everyone's on the same page. Uh, we will take a short break and come back and talk, talk some more about this. Uh, you're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich, and we'll be right back after a short break. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Hey, welcome back. I'm William Ulrich. You're listening to uh, my episode on the seven deadly sins. Uh, leading to strategy execution blues. So as I was going to uh, before break, I was explaining about the uh, fourth stage where we're setting program and investment scope and how you want to make sure that it is based on uh, clear assessments and formal understanding done in the first three stages. So that provides you a realistic perspective of what things will cost and how long it will take to meet the goals and objectives and what the solution should look like. Ultimately, the final stage of the end to strategy execution delivers a deployable solution that works. This can and oftentimes should be delivered incrementally, of course, especially when these initiatives span long periods of time, as they would for more comprehensive strategies like the one to establish a single view of the customer, uh, as I discussed in my earlier example. So back to the execution chain, strategy execution chain being broken, uh, based on my reading of the expert interviews, I can confirm that strategy execution is not going well. From innovation expert Vivek Wadwa to software transformation expert Don Estes and everyone in between, the list of things that don't go well involving major investments in business strategy is a long one. But to be more specific, I cited a few strategy execution experts or statistics in my first episode. These are referenced on my website's radio show page under episode one and again for, the ep- for this episode. But let me recap some of the statistics uh, to be sure we're all clear on understanding uh, what the challenges are with strategy execution. So according to the strategy implementation survey, only 2% of leaders are confident that they will achieve 80 to 100% of their strategic objectives. 
And those same leaders believe that only 5% of employees have a basic understanding of the company strategy. In other words, the people that run organizations don't think that they can achieve what they want to achieve, and most people have no clue about the organization, what the organization wants to achieve anyway. A lack of strategy transparency remains an issue, but it gets more interesting. According to PwC's strategy that works, 9 out of 10 business leaders concede they are missing major market opportunities. This is not a statistic that many business leaders want to be associated with. So let me offer up an example. Uh, consider the major shift in market share of virtual meeting technology providers over the past year and a half. During the first year of the pandemic, some video call platform providers excelled, while other companies, in some cases former leaders, fell back. According to a study by Email Tool Tester, a Zoom went from having 26.4% of the market to 48.7% of the market, uh, almost doubling, by Q2 2020, while Skype went from having 32.4% of the market to only now, well, by Q2 2020, having 3.6% of the market during that same time. While not having insights into exactly where the companies uh, that lost market share stumbled, they either bought strategy setting or they fell short in delivering on those strategies. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that part of the issue with Skype uh, is likely to have been the inability to adapt to changing market or environmental conditions. So as Stephen Heckel said in his book and reinforced in his episode three interview, uh, the only kind of strategy that makes sense uh, is one to become adaptive. And I think that makes, that's good advice for everybody, and we'll revisit that, that advice over the course of the show. So Stephen felt that most organizations have not focused on becoming more adaptable, and the virtual meeting technology providers that fell to the back of the pack simply failed to adapt. I'll share more about the Zoom phenomenon later under deadly sin number three, where good ideas are only, only assumed to emanate from the C-suite. Now, let me highlight a few other insights gleaned from my interviews. So let me just start with innovation. Innovation, uh, my innovation interview in episode two, and, uh, and both on my uh, AI or artificial intelligence interviews in episodes nine and 12, indicated that the vast majority of organizations are at the early stages of AI. Uh, perhaps we can write this off to a situation where AI technology is still evolving, to be fair, but most are unprepared, as Seth early said in episode number nine and are not making a big effort to get prepared. So again, the words of Stephen Heckel run true. Episode five reinforced challenges with program and project execution, uh, which I'll expand on when I discuss deadly sin number four. And I realize I'm jumping around here a little bit, but when we get to deadly sins two, three, four, five, you'll see how they all fit together. Uh, But suffice it to say that if you cannot deliver programs and projects, strategy execution will suffer. And we'll get into a lot more detail on that topic as we go. Uh, So, are we readying business leaders of the future to deal with strategy execution? Uh, That's the good question, right? So, we're not doing so well today. Uh, We're running into issues with, and we'll see more about this as we go through the show, uh, transformation, not delivering programs and projects, and so forth, right? Uh, So, the question is, you know, what are our universities doing? What are the MBAs programs doing? So in episode 13, uh, my interview with Dr. Brian Cameron of Penn State's Business School found that the vast majority of university master's programs are not preparing future leaders to deal with strategy execution. Yes, they teach strategy formulation, but this is where it ends. MBA students represent a good number of individuals who join strategic planning consultancies. So, right, the ones you know that help set goals and objectives. So the answer uh, based on this research is, no, we're not doing a good job preparing them. We're teaching them how to set goals and objectives, but not the execution piece of it. So, well, that's left to the shell-shocked business leaders who are often ill-prepared to execute. So let's move on uh, to the next topic. Deadly sin number two, culture, politics, and silos form an evil triad. It's said that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and one might add politics to this quote. But this is only really part of the story. Cultural differences often stem from and are magnified by business unit silos. So, for example, an automotive fleet management team 
may have different culture than the dealership engagement team or multiple manufacturing teams across different business areas and geographies and cultures and product lines uh, might have different, uh, different cultures and perspectives. So these examples highlight the root cause of many cultural differences, the business unit silos. The silos themselves uh, create communication, coordination, and interoperability issues in planning uh, strategy execution. So consider my, my customer's scenario. So let's take an example here where the executives determine they want to establish one view of customer, as I said earlier. And then they, they bring all of the executive vice presidents into the office uh, from six different divisions and product lines, say, okay, this is what we're going to do. But instead of obtaining an ecosystem-wide impact assessment and business design, the CEO gathers them together, shares his corresponding goals and objectives, and tells them to go forth and execute. And be sure to work together, he says, as they're walking out of the room. Well, these EVPs don't like each other. Uh, They've got their own budgets. They have no plan to work together. Each EVP launches their own series of well-meaning programs and projects to consolidate customers within their own division. Tens or hundreds of millions of dollars later, the organization is still stuck with six different views of customer. Why? Because, in this example, the political differences were magnified by the business unit silos. So many of you bore this out. Uh, in episode six on enterprise risk management, uh, Sim Siegel highlighted issues related to business unit silos that led to piecemeal risk management. Uh, Sim spoke of the fact that organizations historically perform risk management in silos and end up lacking an enterprise risk management perspective. He highlighted that risk management, which in turn impacts strategic goals and objectives, should be performed from a holistic perspective, not a siloed perspective. In other words, siloed thinking not only undercuts strategy execution, but also impacts the ability to manage risk. Now, there's more examples. In Episode 9, uh, I interviewed Seth Early on AI-powered enterprise. He highlighted the challenge silos present in digital transformations, and he noted the difficulty inherent in breaking down silos in practice, but said that organizations must be intentional in terms of managing decisions, work, and taxonomies, or organizing principles and language across those silos. This was reinforced in Episode 12 by AI expert Phaedra Boyanderis. She stated that silos create deployment roadblocks for AI, and it clearly defined business models are required to overcome the impediments presented by those silos. So seeing past the silos and disentangling cultural issues is, is something that's incredibly important in order to, uh, to execute on strategy. So we talked about this in Episode 7 uh, when my, we got into business architecture, and I'm going to reference that, that episode a couple more times, and then we'll talk about business architecture near the end of the conversation today and get into more detail. The main lesson here is that while cultural and political issues will always exist, uh, we foment those, those issues, the cultural and political issues, right, by continuing to work in a series of silos right, across the business ecosystem where we, we really just lack total visibility uh, into that overall ecosystem. And then we really struggle to function. So addressing culture was, uh, uh, was covered to varying degrees over the course of three different episodes where topics included the adaptive enterprise uh, business architecture, and, and also um, architecting for good, which also was, by the way, on business architecture. Uh, in episode three, Stephen Heckel uh, shared with us his insights uh, in terms of uh, understanding how the organization should be structured in better ways. Right? And he talked about the adaptive enterprise, right? around a collection of capabilities versus around reporting structures, which, which reinforce silos, and around customer value as opposed to around the profit model. He spoke around organizing around benefits to customers. Right? So that was another thing he talked to. This is the very thinking that has been formalized in business architecture. And this was explained in greater detail in Episode 7 with Kelly Eckmeyer and Teresa Garcia-Holm, as well in Episode 15 with Wendy Keene. To organize your thinking in a formal way around business capabilities and customer value delivery, uh, there is a way to do that, and business architecture lends, that, uh, lends itself to doing that because it's a very formal structure 
for bringing that cross-organizational perspective together. So I'll cover more on business architecture, as I said, as we get into the latter parts of today. Deadly sin number three, good ideas are confined to the C-suite. I think that it's safe to say that most strategies emanate from the top in the C-suite. In most organizations, good ideas are rarely solicited from rank-and-file employees, and in many cases, it's politically unacceptable to do so. Uh, An all-too-common attitude taken by the C-suite is that good ideas come from the top. The thinking goes, what what can employees possibly contribute of value? And another thing you hear sometimes is they should keep their opinions and ideas to themselves and do their job. Now, we learned a painful lesson uh, from Vivek Wadwa in Episode 2 on the future of innovation. And he discussed the, the failure of isolated, siloed, or ivory tower innovation teams and programs. Uh, Vivek provided examples of bottom-up innovation where an Amazon engineer came up with the idea of Amazon Prime. Uh, He cited the amount of revenue that Amazon Prime is now bringing in, and it's an astronomical number. The idea did not come from an innovation center, but rather from a worker who had an idea based on his real-world experience, the work that's going on day-to-day. Vivek dispelled the idea of creating innovation clusters, such as the failed experiment with Kenya's smart city. Instead, Vivek stressed that people make innovation happen. Bottom-up innovation comes from the rank and file, but only and only if the culture and politics allow for this to happen. Another example of great ideas surfacing uh, from rank-and-file employees or workers is an engineer working at Cisco. Now, in this case, uh, the engineer was uh, ignored uh, and wasn't given time uh, to be listened to. And that same engineer then left Cisco and formed a company we're probably all familiar with, Zoom. Uh, because executives would not listen to his ideas. Uh, as I previously noted uh, earlier in the show, uh, Zoom now leads the video call platform market with almost half the market share. By the way, in that same study, I should note that Cisco uh, was not even in the top eight video call platform providers. This engineer offered this idea to Cisco executives, and they turned it down because they didn't want to listen to a rank-and-file worker with these ideas. And now uh, Zoom has really overtaken them, not only in market share, uh, but I think if you look at some of the market caps out there, they're pretty amazing. So how can we engage workers in innovation, uh, you ask? Well, uh, Vivek recommends uh, creating small rank-and-file teams that can gather and spend half-day sessions coming up with new innovative ideas for products and offerings. He also said that companies that try to confine the source of good ideas to the C-suite uh, will eventually uh, disappear. And that, of course, is is not a good thing. So uh, the high-value, high payback of gleaning ideas from a broad base of workers uh, at organizations dominated uh, my interview with James Smith in our Episode 14 discussion on improving corporate earnings through swarm intelligence, Uh, a wide variation in topic, of course, from what I covered with Vivek and some of the other, uh, other guests. So in this discussion, Jim spoke of the significant cost savings that were accrued when major organizations engaged employees in a formal effort uh, to share what they saw as bad ideas in action. In some of these examples, uh, tens of thousands of ideas were submitted and once validated and rationalized, uh, produced in some cases significant savings uh, for the organization. And those savings were in the many, many, uh, depending on the size of the organization, uh, the many, many millions and millions of dollars. Right? And th- that was a really significant kind of thing because they were bringing in ideas that uh, executives didn't have, didn't know about. Right? So um, he had tens of thousands, again, I- of ideas. Uh, they had to be validated and rationalized, of course, um, but they, they not only impacted uh, reduction of expenses, but obviously increases in net income. This is a great example of how better ideas can not only be generated but quickly acted upon if you open up the culture to bottom-up employee contributions. So uh, these are only two examples of where good ideas can make a big difference and should come from the rank-and-file employee base. And I think that that's really important to to consider to think about. Uh, Others surfaced in my conversation, such as in Episode 5 with Jim Johnson, who termed his rank-and-file employee contributors to his program management research work as spies. Uh, Why did he call them spies? 
because the approach ensured that the data was not whitewashed by business leaders seeking to cover up the real story regarding how well programs and projects actually performed. Uh, he didn't trust, or I guess I should say um, it appeared that he did not trust uh, executives or business leaders or, or managers to give him the data. He wanted to hear it from the people on the ground doing the work because they actually could tell you what's going on. And, you know, if you're going to try to fix an issue, you have to first realize that you have an issue and admit that you've got that issue. So regardless of what terms the rank-and-file workers uh, that form the backbone of your company use, uh, it would behoove business leaders to engage them more often and more proactively to glean ideas because they're really, uh, at the end of the day, your greatest resource. So deadly sin number four, delivery, uh, program delivery blues undermine uh, strategy. So what does that mean? That means that your programs and projects are probably not executing very well. Right? Uh, if organizations cannot successfully deliver programs and projects, or whatever you decide to call them uh, based on your uh, methodology of the day, right, then, of course, uh, you're going to have a struggle in delivering uh, and executing on strategy. So uh, this is based on, on a lot of research. Um, so, for example, in Episode 5, I interviewed Jim Johnson of the Standish Group on the topic Achieving Successful Program Execution, a research-based approach. We talked about 25 years of data and successes and failures of project management. And in that discussion, Jim highlighted uh, data that showed that one-third of projects were considered successful over a 25-year span, and two-thirds uh, were considered either failed or not meeting, not meeting targets. So he confirmed that these stats didn't improve over a 25-year period, which begs the question, why? Well, my interview with Seth early in Episode 9 supported the Standish findings. He said only 30%, according to studies, of digital transformation efforts succeed. So my question is, why in the world has industry not improved its program and project delivery success rates over the last 25 years? Uh, consider that two decades of numerous business and technology disciplines have emerged and matured, with most targeted improving how programs and projects deliver value. Right? Agile, for example, is, is one of those elements. Uh, software services and architectures are, is another element. DevOps, which is the continuous development and delivery of software. And, of course, uh, the software and hardware available, as highlighted by Kevin Studley in my Episode 16 interview, has matured at an amazing pace. So why haven't the stats improved? Well, you'll recall from my introduction today that strategy execution um, is an end-to-end, -end five-stage framework, right? And strategy deployment is the back end of that. So in terms of strategy execution framework, uh, these, most activities that we're talking about that are impacted by these improvements are occurring uh, at stage five. They're not occurring upstream. So it appears, and it would be logical to assume, that many of the issues that are affecting the ability to deliver strategy and to deliver programs are really being addressed in stages one through four. Uh, most of the areas where these methodologies have little impact or touch upon. So my experience is that uh, business leaders need to take a look at those focal points and work on those. Right. So how do we tell when a program's gone south? Uh, in episode 12, uh, AI expert Phaedra Buenadura stated that the AI efforts underway, and she's got broad insight into this, are stuck in testing. And any project stuck in testing is struggling with strategy execution. So if you want to have a good measure of that, you should take a look at what's out there and then determine uh, how you're going to figure out how to deal with that. But it, the issues that happen are probably well, well upstream. So when we come back from break, we'll jump to uh, uh, deadly sin number five. Uh, this is William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. We're discussing uh, seven deadly sins leading to strategy execution. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Looking to enhance your business architecture skills, become a certified business architect, or align your team to a common approach? Check out Business Architecture Associates. Industry pioneers and co-founders Wendy Keen and William Ulrich have trained thousands of business professionals, turning beginners into practitioners and practitioners into experts. BAA offers in-house and public business architecture training for individuals and organizations with more than 20 courses to choose from, including the Business Architecture Bootcamp, popular mini-course series, and custom workshops. BAA can create a learning path for you and your organization. Why learn from the rest when you can learn from the best? Check out BAA's course offerings at businessarchitectureassociates.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back, everybody. I'm William Ulrich. This is the North Star. Uh, we're discussing the seven deadly sins leading to the strategy execution blues. Uh, data, uh, deadly sin number six. Data is the weak link in the chain. Uh, data is often ignored and generally in worse shape than assumed. Uh, this came out in a number of different areas, but one of the big ones is my interview with Seth Early in episode number nine, where the focus was on AI. And he indicated that an important class of AI looks at broad amounts of structured data to make its inferences. So AI does not fix bad data. It certainly requires data. So according to studies, AI spending continues to grow in in large amounts, and uh, by inference, no pun intended, uh, so too with dependence on data. According to Seth, data is the biggest AI roadblock. Uh, What's wrong with the data? Well, essentially, uh, two things. One is organization how it's organized, and the other one is what he calls integrity issues or junk data. Uh, junk data does not serve an effect, as an effective AI baseline. And uh, the organization of data means that it's not architected well, so you can't access what you need, or there's multiple variations of everything. So data issues cut right to the heart of prioritization and spending. And this was a phenomenal uh, citation that he had from one study. He said that he saw... Um, uh, some work going on where there was an organization spending about $150 million on an enterprise resource planning or ERP system, yet executives balked at spending $1 million on cleaning up and architecting their data. Um, somehow things seem backwards there. So uh, organizations that want to improve the customer experience, they need data, right? They have to spend money on architecting and cleaning it up. In our example earlier of organizing a custom one view or customer, you're not going to get away with that unless you deal with the data. Uh, and then you have to be proactive. And the reason that, and the fact that people are not proactive and organizations are not proactive really is perplexing to a lot of us from the outside looking in. Uh, Seth indicated number one stake organizations make uh, on AI deployment is assuming that the data is in great shape. But the, again, there's other reasons uh, to uh, re-architect, uh, rationalize and cleanse data as it relates to understanding your business processes. In episode eight, I discussed the topic of re-envisioning our organizations to find and automate work with Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. Uh, they discuss the importance of applying an approach to modeling an organization's processes that differs from traditional BPM. They called it adaptive case management, which is an event, state, and data-oriented way of modeling an organization's processes that allows for a much greater degree of flexibility, particularly the large number of processes, upwards of 60 to 80% that are not repeatable or predictable. So the benefits of the approach are outlined in, uh, in Episode 8. But the bottom line is that if organizations want to improve the level of how they're doing work, they should invest in their data. Uh, deadly sin number seven, business strategy is captive to technological immaturity. So for all the anti-patterns that, that surfaced here, 
The fact that business strategy is captive to or hamstrung by a wide range of technical immaturity across a range of decisions and deployments is most obvious. So to be frank, organizations around the world are not designing, deploying, and managing their software systems very well. Episode 11 with Don Estes explained how countless organizations are trying to deal with large-scale, complex, and poorly architected software systems. And that rebuilding those systems uh, is a monumental challenge and costing uh, them an incredible amount of money. So organizations keep these systems running until they can no longer function effectively or the systems undercut the organization's ability to compete effectively. So how well are organizations dealing with these systems? Again, not well. Uh, Many will be forced into drastic situations, mostly because of of mismanaging their software portfolios over the past 40 years. If you keep the portfolios up, if you move to new approaches, new technologies, uh, new, well, new platforms if it's appropriate, uh, all reasonable. But if you don't do that and you let it sit and the people who know how to work with it are gone, uh, you're going to be backed into a corner, which is where most organizations, by the way, are. So um, it's hard to use, difficult, time-consuming, and expensive, uh, hard to communicate with, hard to share data with, prone to errors or even failure, right? Those are the older systems. So we would assume that new software based on the latest technologies and techniques would eventually overcome these inadequacies of older software system architectures, right? We've had all these new methodologies. Uh, We've got uh, software services, DevOps, Agile, all these other great things that have emerged over the past two decades, right? Unfortunately, it's not true. Episode 10, my episode 10 interview with Charles Bowman on business-driven software design, I asked him about the quality and design of development work underway. He had a few good things to say. In fact, when I asked him if uh, software systems are being developed effectively, Charlie is quoted as saying, a sweeping no. The business issue he cited is that customer wants A and the IT organization delivers B. Why? Probably something went wrong again in strategy execution stages one, two, three, four. Did we have a good design? Did we understand the impact? Did we frame frame things effectively. All of those things can go haywire. So uh, Charlie cited a Gartner report stating that global spending on software development topped $3.75 trillion, yeah, that's trillion dollars worldwide, and this number grew during the pandemic to $3.9 trillion. The staggering number becomes even more interesting when one considers that as measured by Standish Group's project uh, failure rate, over $1 trillion of that dollars, uh, about a little under a third, but to be generous, I, I, I rolled it down. Uh, simply, is never deployed, never delivered, or never worked. So as previously noted, poorly architected, poorly designed software systems are being built today. So again, using the Gartner number of the remaining software that probably did get deployed, let's call it $2.9 trillion worth of deployed software, um, at least a good portion of that is probably uh, poorly designed and underperforming. And, and that is borne out again, in, in fact. Now, remember, I mentioned a strategy execution tries to deliver something, but the business community may not like it, accept it, or use it. So the software falls right into that category. Right? So check out Episode um, uh, 7 and hear more about how two major financial institutions uh, were working with uh, uh, using business architecture to improve how they do their work in software delivery. So the issues with technology go on. That, that's not all. Uh, episode 16, I interviewed Kevin Studley of IBM about uh, overall strategies and related investments organizations are making and selecting, deploying, and moving to alternative platforms. Uh, the efforts are usually high cost, high risk, um, and sometimes ill-advised. So we'll, when an organization allows its business strategy be, to be um, hijacked by IT, the IT organization, and that strategy is based on the flawed belief that their mainframe environment is not only inappropriate, but probably at fault for everything that goes wrong, right? They're going to try to invest in, in uh, some kind of migration, right? Um, and, and that's where the platform switches come over. But as I discussed with Kevin and also with Don Estes, many of these investments not only undercut strategy execution, but actually displace good strategy definition with ill-conceived technology action plans. So uh, my perspective is that when this happens, strategy executions probably hit bottom. Uh, one more point made by Don Estes is that any software problem is really a business problem, which is important, and that require business-driven solutions, which, again, is happening up at, at uh, strategy execution stages one, two, three, four, not in five. 
when business decisions are driving uh, business strategy and related business uh, business decisions, it's a classic example of the tail wagging the dog. Uh, it's more common than you think, uh, so be aware of it if uh, if you're in a large organization and your IT organization is making decisions that you probably need to be involved in. So collectively, the seven deadly sins, or as I call them, anti-patterns, undercut strategy in lots of ways, given the fact that the vast majority of medium to large and even small to medium organizations bear the weight of most, if not all, of these anti-patterns. It's a wonder strategies ever get deployed at all. You would think that if organizations continue to apply the same approaches, repeating or reliving the same anti-patterns over and over again, and those organizations continue to underperform and underdeliver year after year, someone anyone in the C-suite would step in or some other senior executive and suggest maybe, just maybe, we need to take a different approach. So not sure of the motivation uh, and whether it's a fact that we live in challenging times or the competition's hitting organizations from all sides. But a personal observation on this is that most organizations have sweeping and, frankly, unrealistic goals and objectives. Trying to change decades, for example, of software uh, that have accrued that they haven't been able to make much of a dent in in a short period of time. Uh, a lot of it's technology-driven. Uh, if you ever ask someone what their North Star is and, and they say cloud computing or digital transformation, uh, these are business, not, not business strategies, and <clears throat> the only people that argue otherwise are, are maybe people who read it in a magazine and think it is a business strategy or don't know what their business strategy is or they're technologists. So, well, uh, 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 change efforts and corresponding investments appear to be scaling up. Organizations continue to double down on the anti-patterns I discussed, which means we're going to keep seeing the same numbers over and over again. So organizations need to make a concerted effort to address each anti-pattern and also look at them as a whole. Right? So, for example, silo thinking and lack of holistic perspective can be addressed collectively by creating a shared perspective of the business ecosystems. So as investments, programs, projects, and other activities continue to scale up, let's take a quick look at, at a few things. Uh, the big-ticket budget items continue to grow. So we, let's take a look at the facts here. If someone is giving you advice, follow the money. The systems integrator in your office last week is telling you to do a migration, feeding your insecurity that you are behind on digital transformation, cloud computing, and AI. As many of the experts I interviewed said, this is not as much a case as you are told, so don't panic. Right, and then also believe, uh, also remember that that integrator is asking you to write a check of a hundred million as a down payment and leave it up to them. So make no mistake, right? They're talking you into spending money with them. Do they have your best interests in heart? Well, that's to be discussed. Uh, but wait, the analyst firms agree. They say the same thing. Uh, you should be in the cloud. You should digitally transform. Well, guess who pays these analyst firms a healthy annual fee to support these positions? Yes, it's the same systems integrators. But putting those internal forces aside, let's, take a, uh, let's look internally for some solutions. Right? At the end of the day, the integrator is going to leave and you're going to be holding the bag. Uh, so what are some ideas for tackling the seven deadly sins without writing a $100 million check? Let's start by taking stock of every idea, goal, objective, or proposed investment from an end-to-end -end formal strategy execution perspective. Again, I have links to the five-stage framework on my website for this episode, so you can find it there. A second recommendation, look no further than Episode 7 on business architecture. The interview provides you with an understanding of the discipline uh, and where to go. Right? If you listen, uh, after you listen to Episode 7, also check out Episode number 5. Right? Episode 7, by the way, features uh, PNC Bank and Wells Fargo. And they're going to talk, they talk about how they use business architecture to uh, get to a common understanding and overcome a lot of technology issues, at least deal with them. Right? So that's really important. On the technology challenges, business architecture also provides end-to-end -end strategy execution traceability and insights into building out your data and software architectures. That said, you need more. Uh, stop following the crowd uh, on unnecessary costly migrations. If you do a migration, leverage the best practices. Uh, but let me leave it at this. Establish your own understanding of strategy execution, business priorities, and business architectures. Stop reaching for silver bullets and shelling out money to third parties with little more than a whisper of a promise for a better world. And remember, your people have good ideas. Listen to them. Encourage them to come forward. You might be surprised. And a note on business architecture. Business architecture is an, a homegrown, in-house role. You need to build your own. You can't outsource it to integrators. It's something that you need your business people with high business IQs focusing on. So it's something to keep, keep in mind. I'll go through a lot more in coming weeks. 
but I, I do want to just say that uh, these anti-patterns, uh, or as I call them, the seven deadly sins, are uh, key factors that you need to think about as you're going through your planning and execution. Uh, take a look at all of them. Take a look at the strategy execution framework that's linked to on my website, uh, again, on my uh, uh, page, and, and get some ideas on how you want to formalize some of these things. And if you think it's going to take too long to do an assessment, um, we call that in the business of slowing down to speed up. Um, remember, if you're stuck 10 months in testing because you didn't do the work up front, uh, that's not delivering uh, quickly and effectively. So with that, um, uh, I want to wrap up for today. Uh, I am William Ulrich. You've been listening to North Star. And our topic's been the seven deadly sins leading to strategy execution. Uh, please go to the North Star Radio Show page of my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com, uh, to obtain links uh, to all the episodes referenced today uh, with material reference during each of those episodes. Uh, I, what I do want to add is um, that I would like you to contact me and give me some ideas for some future uh, things that you might want me to cover. And um, I am going to do a quick shout-out to some of my listeners as I, I look around at my stats and see, you know, China, Australia, Liberia, Spain, and, and Singapore um, have been listening in among, obviously, uh, many other countries. Uh, my guest next week will be two CEOs who head up two international standards organizations. I'll be welcoming Steve Nunn, CEO of the Open Group, and Dr. Richard Soldi, CEO of Object Management Group. We'll be discussing industry standards, why your organization should care. You've been listening to The North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email on LinkedIn or at my website. Uh, shoot me a note. Uh, let me know what's going on. Uh, thanks for joining me today, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to The North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 